This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Good afternoon. I'm Huda Zagbi, professor at Baylor College of Medicine and an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and director of the Jan and Dan Duncan Neurological Research Institute at Texas Children's Hospital. In part one, I shared with you uh, the features of Rett syndrome and shared with you the discovery of the gene of Rett syndrome being uh, methyl CPG binding protein 2, or MECP2 for short, and also the discovery that having an extra copy of the gene causes another disease called the MECP2 duplication disorders. So, in this part, we're going to discuss the mechanism of the disease, exactly what happens when you lose this gene or when you have an extra copy to it. And specifically, we're going to discuss what happens to neurons, because at the end of the day, when you have behavioral and neurological problems, it's really because of neurological dysfunction. So, we want to learn what happens to a neuron when this gene is lost or duplicated. And we want to understand, I shared with you in part one, that many genes have expression changes, their levels change. So, we want to learn exactly how might this happen, what drives that. So, let's start first by learning where is this protein and when is it, is it expressed. And if you look at this cartoon, you'll see uh, images of the human brain during development. It starts at 10 weeks fetus, 10 weeks gestation, through 19 weeks gestation, and so on, till about 35 weeks, just before the baby's born. And then you'll see it going up to 10 years. And the little red dots tell you when we detected this protein in the brain. And if you look at this picture, you'll see that this protein is not as high in the brain when the fetus is young. And even at birth, it's not quite high in every cell in the brain. What we notice that this protein continues to increase its level after birth, almost up to the point the child is 10 years of age, when we practically by then see it in every neuron and highly abundant. Realizing that after early development, this uh, protein reaches maximum level in the, in the brain, the first question we wanted to ask, if we waited in the mice till the protein has reached the maximum level, and it's in every brain cell, and the brain cell has benefited from its existence there throughout development, but now we genetically take it out in the mature adult brain, what might happen? And what you see here is, on the left, is an adult knockout, which means we deleted it in a mature three-month-old mouse. And you'll notice all the mice died 25 weeks from the time it was completely gone from the brain. On the right, you'll see the mice that lack the gene throughout development. And here you see, from the time of birth, they died 25 weeks after birth. What this told us is that this protein is necessary for brain function throughout life. It's not that once we pass a certain developmental stage, we don't need it anymore. We actually need it throughout life. So, once we learned that, we became interested to see is if we delete this gene in specific types of neurons that make different types of neurotransmitters or have different functions, might we reproduce some of the features of Rett syndrome? So, in the big circle, you'll see all the clinical features we typically see in girls with Rett syndrome. And around that, you'll see mice, a cartoon of the mouse brain, where the different cell type 
we typically took the gene from to see which feature might be attributed to that brain region. I'll give you an example. If we took it out from the hypothalamus, we notice, which we know it has neurons that regulate feeding behavior, we notice that the animals ate uncontrollably. If we took it out from the neurons that make dopamine, we notice that the animals had motor difficulty and motor movement problem, and so on and so forth. But in the next slide, I'm going to share with you a story about when we took it out from two types of neurons that together make up the majority of neurons in the nervous system. On the left is what we call excitatory neurons. They make the neurotransmitter glutamate, and they're excitatory because they're the one through which information flows all the time. They provide excitatory impulses. On the right are inhibitory neurons. And here we put different types because I'm going to share with you how we studied it in different types of inhibitory neurons. The inhibitory neurons make the neurotransmitter GABA, and they are the ones who help regulate when the information flow from the excitatory neurons happens. They sort of uh, synapse on the excitatory neurons and regulate that information flow. So, Excitatory neurons make up 80% of the neurons in the brain, about 75 to 80%, and inhibitory neurons, about 20% of the neurons in the brain. To our surprise, we found something interesting. We found that if you took the gene out from either the excitatory or the inhibitory, eventually all the animals will have feeding problems, sensory uh, motor problems, coordination problems, as well as they die prematurely. So, it is essential in both neurons. That told us that there are neurons that regulate feeding and survival and motor activity that are both inhibitory and excitatory, and taking this gene out from them is going to kill the animals. But what was really interesting is that we saw some features unique to the excitatory neurons, such as the anxiety or the tremor, Whereas in the inhibitory neurons, we saw things such as social behavior, spasticity, inability to regulate or initiate or plan a motor movement, and autism-like features, social deficit features. Now, when we took the gene out from these neurons, we were able to study them. And what we learned, that both of them have dampened function. So, taking this gene out of a particular neuron dampens its activity by about 30%. So, what this told us then, that dampening the activity of either excitatory or inhibitory neurons by 30% is enough to cause all the features you see in the slide and uh, eventually death. Then we asked, there are different types of inhibitory neurons. How about if we now selectively taking it out from subtypes? And we took it out from somatostatin neurons. They make the neurotransmitter somatostatin as well as uh, parvalbumin neurons that make another neurotransmitter, uh, parvalbumin. And here, again, we found modularity. That means not all the features of inhibitory neurons were seen in these subtypes, but a subset of them. And this is really important, because what this taught us is that this protein is important for neuronal function. If you take it out, you dampen that neural function. And what manifests as a feature from every neuron is really telling you what that neuron is very critical for regulating. So, it really taught us something more than just Tourette's syndrome. It taught us something about the function of these neurons, 
about their neurobiology and their vulnerability in various neuropsychiatric disorders. Now, all these studies were in a specific neuronal type, one neuronal type at a time. Next, we wanted to ask, well, how are the neurons behaving when they're connected to each other? I told you the inhibitory neurons and the excitatory neurons synapse onto each other, and they regulate each other function. So, to do that, we then went to a different kind of study, where we took a slice of the hippocampus, and we added uh, to these neurons in the hippocampus a, uh, a gene that expresses a calcium-sensitive protein uh, fused with a green fluorescent uh, protein. This way, every time the neuron fires, the calcium level in the neuron is increased, and this calcium-sensitive prote protein called calmodulin will now allow the green fluorescent protein to fluoresce. So, every time a neuron is excited, it's fluoresce. So, now we can watch these neurons in a network and see their behavior. And if we look at these now in this video, you'll see on the top, in the healthy animal, a neuron might fire here and there independently. But notice in the mutant animals, where the neurons, a lot of them, fire together. We call that increased synchrony or increased firing together. And that's not normal. What you normally want when there is no task being performed is that each neuron fires independently. If you look at the data in a different way, in this graph, you see on top a healthy animal, the data from a healthy animal, in the middle, data from an animal that totally liked the red gene, and the bottom is an animal from the heterozygous female, which is the model for Rett syndrome. And in each of these boxes, each row is, uh, is a neuron, and you'll notice that in in, e in the wild-type animal, each neuron fires independently from the row behind it, and the row below it, and so on and so forth. But in the male rat, you'll notice where there is an arrow, there are five neurons firing together, or four neurons firing together. And if you look in the female uh, animals, you'll see, for example, here, another four neurons or so firing together. You'll see a lot more of that event, which is why the video shows us that. So, now what we've learned, then, is this protein is important for every neuron for its function, but it's not only the single function of the neuron. It's really the whole network that's altered, and that in these females' mice, there's too much... too many neurons firing together, rather than sporadically, when the brain is at rest, and that may be interfering with their learning and memory. So, that's studying what this protein does in the brain. How about what does it do in the cell? How can it affect the function uh, of the cell? And how does... how does the effect of this protein that regulates gene expression eventually translate to this abnormal neuronal behavior? So, here we're going to get back to what this protein does. And we're going to learn a little bit about DNA methylation, how it's written, and how it's read. This is what we call the script of DNA methylation. So, imagine this little star as a methylated cytosine, because I told you this protein is a methyl cytosine binding protein. Typically, there is a writer for this mark. So, the purple oval is a schematic of a cartoon of a protein that would be the writer, the one that will come and add this methylated mark. And then, there is a reader, 
and that's the green uh, rectangle. And typically, methyl CPG binding protein binds those methylated DNAs is one of those readers. And then, of course, for every writer and reader, there's an eraser. And this is typically enzymes that are called the TET enzyme, and they help uh, uh, remove the methyl group by first making hydroxy, hydro, uh, but they modify the DNA, creating a hydroxymethyl group, which is an intermediate step before the loss of methylation. So we know that this is what happens, and we knew that this protein binds methylated DNA. But in 2013, there was a new discovery from the lab of Joe Ecker and Marga Burns where they discovered that in addition to the cytosine followed by guanine that's shown in this double strand of DNA, there is cytosine that can be methylated that may be followed by any nucleotide. As you can see here, another A, adenine, or cytosine, or thymine. So any of those could be uh, methylated. So what they also discovered, that this particular mark the methyl mark that's not CG, but the methyl mark that's CH, is enriched after birth. You'll see on the top graph in the human that it increases after birth and it really reaches maturity almost at 10 years of age or beyond. And in the mouse, you see that it enriches also after, after birth and it increases to adulthood when the mice are adult. And this is quite interesting because recall Rett syndrome, I mentioned to you, is a disorder that really the girls are born healthy and it's later on that they develop symptoms. And the writer for this methyl mark, the one that adds this methyl mark on cytosines followed by a C or an A or a T, is DNMT3A. This is the writer of the mark in the brain. It's called DNA methyltransferase 3A. And uh, it's specific for this particular uh, marker. And what we learned is that the timing of this mark, when it increases, shown here in a uh, blue line, is very reminiscent of the timing of the increase in MACP2 levels. That's when MACP2 levels increase uh, post-birth. And this suggested to us that maybe MACP2 then is the reader for this mark. Notice that the other methyl mark, the CG mark, that's present at birth and it continues to be steady. It doesn't increase like the MCH mark. So knowing then that DNMT3A is a writer, we wanted to then ask this specific experiment. How much does the methylation contributed by DNMT3A contributing to Rett syndrome? Because remember, MACP2 can bind the MCG mark as well as possibly the MCH mark. Uh, so the question is, how much of uh, Rett syndrome pathogenesis is mediated by the methylation derived from DNMT3A? And is MACP2 the only reader of the DNMT3A-dependent methylation? So to answer this question, we turned again to the mouse, and we decided to do a head-to-head -head comparison by deleting uh, either the writer, DNMT3A, from inhibitory neurons, or the reader, MACP2, from inhibitory neurons. And what we decided to do to do this in exactly the same strain of mice, the same uh, genetic background, so there are no confounding effects, 
and look at many features, behavior, physiology, molecular changes, to really be able to conclude whether MACP2 is the only reader or there could be other readers. And I'll show you some examples of the data. Here, as you see, that when you lose DNMT3A in these inhibitory neurons, uh, it is a little bit more detrimental than when you lose MACP2. Now, DNMT3A is an autosome, so we study both males and females, whereas uh, MACP2 is on the X chromosome to get total loss, we study the males. And you'll see that the males with DNMT3A loss of function, the red curve, you'll see that these animals have much lower body weight and also the females compared to loss of MACP2 at the same age. So this told us that DNMT3A is more severe. We then compared multiple behaviors. Here I'll show you an example of excessive grooming behavior. It's almost like an obsessive or OCD-like behavior that we see in the mice. And you'll notice that all the controls, which are shown here in black, gray, and light gray, and blue, these are all the different controls. But for the animals that lack DNMT3A or MACP2 only in inhibitory neurons, you see both of them show the red bars excessive groomings. This told us they're very similar on this behavior. And there, we've tested many, many behavior. And on this slide, you're going to see behaviors that are unique to DNMT3A, such as some sensory processing, the severe weight loss, and they died earlier than the MACP2 knockout mice. Whereas in MACP2 knockout, we saw anxiety and gait coordination that we didn't see in the other animal. But in the middle, you'll notice there were a lot of behaviors that were shared among them. So this told us for sure MACP2 must be reading some or many of the uh, MCH marks written by DNMT3A, but we still didn't know how many. We also did physiology. Again, here the controls are the black and the gray line. And then, and the light uh, pink one, but then you see the DNMT3A knockout and MACP2 knockout, these are the red. And they're these little downward spikes, these are inhibitory current, miniature inhibit inhibitory current that we can measure, and they were also decreased. So we knew then, at many levels, the two mutants were similar. Now, to understand what's happening at the molecular level and to establish the reader-writer relationship, now you have to look at gene expression and you have to look at methylation. And for that, we sorted those cells in which we deleted MACP2. We isolated those cells because we had them labeled with green fluorescent protein and isolated RNA from them and sequenced their DNA to see, with, uh, to look at the methylation pattern in those cells. And here, I want to prepare you in this, with this cartoon to see what are we looking for. This is just the healthy condition. Basically, once again, uh, there's the MCG mark, methyl CG, and there's MCH, that's cytosine, followed by any nucleotide that's not a G. And if DNMT3A is the writer, basically, when it sees the DNA, it's going to write the MCH mark. Notice there's already some MCG on the DNA. That's because this particular mark is written during development by an enzyme, another DNA methyltransferase. So, we predict then that the DNMTCA is going to write the MCH mark. Now, if MACP2 is the only reader of DNA-dependent methylation, it's going to 
bind the MCG marks, which we already knew it binds, but it's going to bind all the marks laid down by DNMT3A. This is in a healthy state, if it is the only reader of this mark. What happens when we take it out? If you lose on the left, if you lose the writer, which is DNMT3A, you're going to maintain the MCGs that were written. You're going to lose all the new MCH methylated mark and some of the MCG mark that are put on the DNA after birth. Now, if MACP2 is the only reader, if you lose the reader, it's going to come off all the marks. So, in principle, losing the writer or the reader then should produce very overlapping gene expression changes. And this is why we did the experiment where we isolated these cells that either lost the writer or lost the reader to see what happened to the gene expression and the methylation. First, we looked at the methylation. And as you will predict, if you lose the writer, uh, DNMT3 knockout, you're going to lose the MCH mark. The left, uh, the left uh, panel shows you that in healthy animals, you have plenty of methylated cytosines. Uh, but in the middle, where you lose now the DNMTA, you lost that. But in the MACP2 knockout, methylcytosine is not lost, because this is a reader. This is not a writer. In the right panel, you'll see that there was a small amount of loss of the MCG mark in the DNMT3 knockout. That's because, as I mentioned to you, although it is the writer for all the MCH mark, it can also write a little bit of the MCG sequences throughout the genome. So we see about a 10% loss of that. How about gene expression? Both animals, when they lost these genes in inhibitory neurons, they had a lot of gene expression changes. Shown here, the significant ones, the differentially expressed genes shown here is the pink circles. And you could see both animals had, had a lot of alteration in gene expression. The question, do they overlap? When we did the overlap, this is what we saw. We saw that there were a lot more changes in the DNMT3 knockout. Uh, over 700 genes were altered, where there are over a couple hundred genes that were altered in the MACP2 knockout. But what was most interesting, that there were only 86 genes shared by these two models. So the sharing was much less than what we expected. It was only 11% all the genes altered in the DNMT3 knockout. But interestingly, it represented 40% of all the genes altered in MACP2 knockout. So what this told us, that those shared genes contribute quite a bit to Rett syndrome, given that 40% of the genes that are altered in the Rett, uh, or the male model of MACP2 loss, are, are uh, DNMT3A dependent. But it did then tell us that there must be other readers for the DNMT mark, because here we have 90% of the genes altered in that mouse are not dependent or not shared with MACP2. Among those that are shared with MACP2, the 86, they go in the same direction. So that's pretty much confirming to us that those shared 86 do really uh, contribute to the phenotype of MACP2 knockout, and they are DNMT3A dependent. So, what we learned then from these studies? We learned that if you lose these two proteins in inhibitory neurons, you're going to cause many similar phenotypes. But we also learned that there are some distinct phenotypes. And what it also told us is that MACP2 is a partial reader of DNMT3A methylation. Uh, 
uh, because it, it's only 10, 11% of all the DNMT3A dependent methylation that's shared with MACP2. But it also told us that the MCH significantly contribute to Rett's syndrome because 40% of the changes in that model are um, altered in the MACP2 knockout model, and they are DNMT3A dependent. So, what's to do? That tells us there's more to be discovered. There are other readers of DNMT3A dependent methylation, and we need to find them. But it also tells us there are some targets that are altered in the MACP2 loss of function model that may contribute to Rett syndrome that are not dependent on DNMT3A methylation. So there must be some other MCG or other effects of MACP2 function. And this is where the work is. What this tells us then, in conclusion, that Yes, there are genes that are repressed through the binding of MACP2 to DNA, and this model we know, uh, and some of these genes are MCH-dependent methylation. But as I mentioned to you in part one, there are other domains of the protein that may alter the chromatin conformation. These are the AT-hook domain. This may be another way that we might change gene expression. And lastly, there may be other partners for this protein that may lead to gene expression changes. So, all these are areas that remain to be explored about this protein function. With that, I'd like to thank all the contributors to this work, both alumni and current lab members, and all of our collaborators, both within Baylor and at uh, you see uh, at uh, the Eckers and the in San Diego, the Eckers and Margarita Barron's lab and Chang-Yun Lu. And of course, I'd like to thank the families and our funders. Thank you. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This video was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute.